Welcome to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. We're going to be talking a little little football and basketball in this uh, installment of, of the podcast. We've got the uh, SEC Conference Tournament in, in hoops uh, getting underway this week, so we thought we'd take a, a little break from, from football in the second half of this pod and, and uh, talk a little hoops, but we're going to start off, as the name of the podcast indicates, sticking with, with football and, and some news developing in the last handful of days. LSU's got another face in its quarterback competition. Arizona State transfer Jaden Daniels is, has committed to LSU, and, and that QB competition is not going to be about four deep with Garrett Nussmeyer, Miles Brennan. Uh, the the incoming recruit. Help me out there, John. It's Walker Walker, Walker Howard from uh, Zachary, Louisiana, I think, which is also the hometown of uh, Doug Williams, the former Gramlin and Tampa Bay star, Washington Redskins, won a Super Bowl for them. Yeah, that's right. And so four deep at the QB room for for Brian Kelly's first season. You know, I. On the heels of last season, when when LSU brought in Brian Kelly, it seemed like, okay, maybe it's going to take a year to get this thing rolling. Don't expect it to happen overnight. But LSU has done a really nice job of of addressing what needs they could, I think, in the transfer portal. There's there's been very few teams, if anybody, that's added more transfers than LSU has. Uh, I believe they're at 14 transfers now they've added this offseason. Of course, the quarterback, Jaden Daniels, is is the headliner, but they, they go pretty deep. <laughs> on the transfer list. So should we expect some year one success from, from LSU? Just how much uh, is the is the honeymoon over and it's already time to start winning games for Brian Kelly? What do you think, John? I wasn't crazy about the hire because I didn't think he was a good fit for LSU. But as you know, I think we're both very adept at uh, changing. Yes, so I've, I've pivoting past the, bad opinions, right? Yes, that old take is has been burned, and there's actually there's no evidence that it ever existed. Uh, so no, I like what Brian Kelly's doing. He had a lot of he had a lot of holes on that depth chart, I thought, and he's gone out and filled a lot of them. Pretty much remade his secondary, so uh, he's got three potential starters. His transfers. I don't know. I mean, Lane Kiffin got a lot of lot of pub for uh, for transfers, but who else did uh, outside so- yes. South Carolina? South because Carolina of- did, but I was thinking. I guess I, I guess Lincoln Riley did, but in terms of sheer depth, I don't think anybody can match Brian Kelly. Kudos, or if you'd like to follow up Philip Philip Fulmer's lead, kudos to him. Yeah, and and I think we've mentioned this before, but the the transfer immediate eligibility I think changes the game for first time coaches. Now you can say, well, players can leave even more easily. Yes, that's true, but I think any time there was a coaching change, you saw players leave. Um, what's different now is that these first year coaches don't just have they don't just have to roll with what they inherited. They can bring in, like LSU has done, 14 transfers to sort of remake their roster as best they can within the span of, of a couple months. I mean, you just look at the the skill position. Uh, so they, they bring in Jaden Daniels from Arizona State. They also brought in running back Noah Kane, who got a lot of playing time last couple of years at, at Penn State. 
So, you know, you just you just start at your highest profile positions, I guess, and and quarterback and, and running back. And I think LSU addressed needs in, in both of those spots. And yes, they lost Max Johnson from their quarterback room. He transfers to Texas A&M. But I really think top to bottom, with the addition of the, the highly touted recruit, Walker Howard, I think if you, you look at things top to bottom, I think LSU's quarterback room, I would say, is in better shape than it was this time a year ago, particularly when you consider going into the season, Miles Brennan was was already hurt. So it was sort of Max Johnson, Garrett Nussmeyer, and not much else there for LSU last year. I agree with you. Uh, I like Max Johnson better than you do. So I think if he's healthy and he's got good players around him, if his injury, if his uh, receiving core hadn't suffered a number of injuries and, and it also has a better offensive line, I would like him, but I agree in terms of overall depth, there's a lot of potential here. Somebody should emerge. I tell you what, Brian Kelly's not afraid of, uh, increasing the competition. I mean, he's got those quarterbacks there. There, three of them are thinking they're going to compete for the job. And he says, basically, well, I don't know. Maybe we need another guy in here. Maybe we still need an upgrade. So here's some more competition for you. I didn't see a lot of Jaden Daniels at, uh, at Arizona state. I don't make a habit of watching late night games with mediocre teams in the pac 12. I don't think you do either. I don't No, No, it's not a, it's not on my bucket list, but, uh, he's got, what's interesting about him is his stats have declined. His passing stats have declined each season. Now, what does that say to us? What's interesting though, John, and this might be a reach, but if you go back to say last spring, I think a quarterback transfer that was really flying under the radar was Hendon Hooker, the Virginia Tech transfer who went to Tennessee. Because Hendon Hooker had lost his starting job at Virginia Tech, and I think you could you could say the same thing about his career at, at Virginia Tech. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't improving. I think in some ways he regressed a little bit at Virginia Tech. So there wasn't a ton of fanfare about that transfer. But then he comes into Tennessee and, and has a great season and, and was instrumental in Tennessee making a, a bowl game in year one under Josh Heupel. So, you know, I'm wondering, I, I think the, the Jaden Daniels transfer is getting a little bit more hype than what the Hendon Hooker transfer did. But it still feels like, you know, if you compare this to the hoopla over when Georgia landed JT Daniels because he was a former five star, he was at USC and then even Ole Miss getting Jackson Dart, you, you stick that former USC quarterback on 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 your uh, transfer portal resume card and and that comes with a little bit of sizzle. So, I think by comparison, Jaden Daniels is flying under the radar a little bit, but this is a guy that was a 3-year starter. Like you said, he regressed in his passing production at at Arizona State, but I wonder if a reboot and maybe having some more talent around him uh, assuming he'll find that at LSU could help him in the way that the Hinden Hooker benefited from a fresh start at Tennessee. Blake, that's a great analogy uh, because they're similar type players. And you mentioned the you mentioned the surrounding talent. I think that's that would be a big factor for him at LSU. LSU with Kayshawn Butte returning, uh, he's their go-to guy at receiver, but they've got a lot of depth at receiver now. That's a really good receiving core. It might be the best in the SEC. Jaden Daniels also 
is a runner. I mean, he rushed for over 700 yards. And if you look at Brian Kelly's teams, he liked, he had some success with quarterbacks who could run. So his best team had a running quarterback. So he obviously, he handpicked this guy. I mean, that, to me, that sends a message to the other guys, none of whom, now I don't know about Walker Howard, the freshman. I don't know if he's considered a dual threat kind of guy, but I look at those at the the other returnees as more drop back. Certainly, Miles Brennan, who's one of your favorite quarterbacks, he's a drop back guy with a big arm, pro arm. I'm a little worried now about Miles Brennan's chances of winning <laughs> this the starting job after I took him with my final pick in in our uh, in our quarterback draft on last week's pod, in which we each drafted four SEC quarterbacks, and and I wanted to roll the dice on Miles Brennan now with with Jaden Daniels coming in. In the competition that was already there with Garrett Nussbier and, and the freshman Walker out, I'm a little worried that Miles Brennan's even gonna gonna win the starting job at LSU. I think you when you bring in someone like Jaden Daniels, I think you're bringing him in to start. You're not bringing him in to be your be your third string quarterback. Um, at least if you are, you're not telling him him that. So, you know, beyond LSU, John, we have have a new coach in in the SEC East and Billy Napier, and I think both these guys. When they were hired, you know, I mentioned with Kelly, it's it's like, okay, maybe it's going to take him a year to get things rolling, and now I'm not so sure about that. I, I think he's not going to win a national title in year one, but I think LSU could be better than maybe folks expected, say, three months ago. You look at, at Florida, and as was much publicized, Florida's was recruiting class under Dan Mullen, and then with Mullen being fired, I mean, it was just, it was it was leaking at all the seams. It was, you know, recruits were decommitting. Etc. Well, Billy Napier came in and, and salvaged a top 20 class, which is below Florida's standards, but given what he inherited, uh, it was a pretty good job salvaging that. And while not quite as active as LSU in the transfer portal, Florida's not been silent. They added a quarterback as, as well, and Jack Miller from Ohio State, adding to Anthony Richardson, uh, the, the dual threat quarterback we saw last year, who is coming off of uh, of a knee procedure. And then Emory Jones is still sort of, um, he's hanging around at Florida, so we can't close the book on him yet too. Is it fair to say Florida you think could maybe exceed some expectations in, in year one under a new coach? Possibly Blake. It, they took different approaches. Brian Kelly's was more of a shotgun approach. I'm just bringing in a bunch of guys here and I, I'm not, disparaging their talent because he signed he signed an all big 12 cornerback from Oklahoma State and he got two two proven experienced safeties from Arkansas so he just basically overhauled his team and and Billy Napier even said he wanted to be very selective in adding transfers and he he was very selective and he got a a few of them from uh, his old school from Louisiana. So he knows what those guys can do. And I would think surely he's looked at video of what his returning team looks like. And he's saying, well, my guys are better. I thought uh, the offensive lineman, uh, Osiris Torrance, kind of a weird name, but I think he's a three-time all-conference player. And, uh, Montrell Johnson, a running back, a freshman of the year, I think. And what he right. freshman in the year? It was, yeah, he had a great, he had a great freshman season there at Louisiana Lafayette. Rushed for over 800 yards. So, 
you're right. They did kind of go about it in different ways. It's not like Brian Kelly was just bringing everybody with him from Notre Dame, maybe because he left in the blink of an eye at Notre Dame. There wasn't even any time to, to pack anybody in the wagon out of town. Uh, Billy Napier did it differently. He didn't, he didn't bring in as many transfers, but he did look to his old team, a group of five team, a very good group of five program, uh, and, and plucked some of the top talent with him. Um, and, and you mentioned a, a couple of them there in Montreal Johnson and Osiris Torrance, guys that can are sort of plug and play guys, I think for, for Florida. And so, yeah, it is interesting to see two different approaches. And yet in both cases, the immediate eligibility rule for first time transfers that went into effect a year ago, two different ways of using it, but it's coming into play for both coaches. Yeah, Blake. And, and when I look at what it, it was very strategic, I thought what Napier did. Florida's offensive line to me is kind of played each year. They have high expectations they are supposed to be better. I just don't see them as, as be, haven't seen them as being an outstanding offensive line for a number of years now, a nothing exceptional. So he goes out and gets Osiris Torrance, who I think, as you said, he'll plug in and play in the running backs. They've been pretty good, but they haven't been, they haven't been exceptional. I would, usually had a lot of depth, and he's still got a couple of transfers that haven't done much there hanging around. But this Montrell Johnson might come right in there and start. And didn't you think it was interesting? He's got two returning quarterbacks, yet he goes out and gets Jack Miller from Ohio State as a transfer. And he's more of – he's a little bit different quarterback than Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson. He's, he's kind of a – He's known for accuracy, kind of a drop back guy. He's he's not he he's a little athletic too. But wouldn't you think that if he made that decision to bring him in, he thinks that guy Jack Miller can win the job? Yeah, I think the he thinks that there's a chance, at least. Yeah. And I think, you know, with that injury to Anthony Richardson, and that's not the first injury we've seen for Anthony Richardson, that adds um I think some more mystique to that quarterback position. So you better have, you know, even if Richardson's your, your one, a choice, you better have a one B, uh, waiting because I think, you know, if, if history is our guide, um, relying on Anthony Richardson to be healthy a, a full season might be a little bit risky. And, and when, and when Billy Napier came in, you know, I think Emory Jones's future with the program was, was still in question now to Napier's credit. And, and I, you could also say, I think to, to Emory Jones's credit, he's stuck it out so far at, at Florida. Um, and, and we can't rule out him being in that competition either. But I think when Napier came in, it's like, boy, you better do something to help your quarterback room. And I think he, he did that. And so when we project forward to your, to year one for, for these two programs, John, and it's, it's interesting to compare Florida and, and LSU because, uh, they're the designated interdivision rivals for each other. They play each other every year even though they're they're not in the same division which one would you say maybe has the higher ceiling for year one success do you think would you lean toward lsu or would you lean toward toward florida for a higher ceiling in, in year one well florida of course has the advantage of being in the sec east which is uh, always a plus lsu and the tougher sec west though I still think has done more and created a higher, higher ceiling. I mean, I think when you look at the West, of course, you always say Alabama, and I think now you say Texas A&M. 
Uh, but in Ole Miss, we got to think about Ole Miss after that 10 win season and also getting help from transfers. But I tell you what, I, I look at LSU's depth chart now and I think it could challenge for second place. If, if one of those quarterbacks comes through and he's got a lot to choose from, but if, if Jaden Daniels reverts to his earlier form at Arizona state, if he fits in with this offense and I think he will, or Brian Kelly wouldn't have, wouldn't have hired, uh, brought him in. I wanted to say hired him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, this NIL has kind of changed things. Um, but I really, uh, I really like LSU. The secondary was a weakness, and now he's added three guys, and he lost Eli Ricks, transferred to Alabama, All-American potential. But he, but he brings in Jarek Bernard, Converse from Oklahoma State, All-American potential. I think he's really shored up this, this uh, his offense and his defense in a way too. Uh, so I really like LSU's ch- uh, chances for a much higher ceiling than Florida, even though LSU's in the West. Well, and not only that, John, but I thought another um, area of, that needed to be con- addressed with, with LSU, an area of concern from last season, was that offensive line. Um, and, and LSU probably still needs to make further strides in addressing that. But I think a, a transfer for LSU that, that maybe isn't getting a, a ton of attention because of the position he plays, and we talk about skill position guys, but Miles Frazier was a highly coveted uh, offensive lineman transfer from Florida International uh, that is now at, at LSU. I mean, there was a number of programs that that really wanted him. Um, he's he's a guy I think that can can come in and, and help him as a potential starter on the offensive line. And, and like I said, I think that's an area – uh, regardless of who's playing quarterback for LSU, they have to get better uh, up front and, and in particular in protecting the quarterback. And, and so once again, using the transfer portal, you know, to bring in a freshman, you know, you, you sign off a handful of offensive linemen every year, but to think you're going to address the offensive line immediately through freshman recruits. I mean, that is the hardest position probably to do it, to bring in true freshmen and say, all right, boys, <laughs> you're going to go out there and, and improve our offensive line. And, and you're one of my tenure. That's just, that's a tall task. Uh, much better to, to try to bring in a, a veteran lineman, um, you know, with, with playing experience, someone who's played at, at a, at a high level and, um, and, and addressing your, your offensive line immediately that way. I think he also brought in, didn't he bring in that ETSU offensive lineman, Tremont Shorter? I like guys like that. You know, you say, well, FCS, well, ETSU hammered Vanderbilt in the season opener last year. So um, he was a two-time All-American FCS. I mean, I like to look at these players that maybe are lower classification who have been very productive, that they've, they've been better. You know, and, and yeah, a, a lesser caliber league maybe, but they've shown they can be productive. You're not dealing with somebody like you mentioned, a freshman that comes in and you think they might be a five star, but you don't know about how their the transition will be. These guys have proved themselves not in the SEC, but in another level of college football. So I really like that. You had two starters to your offensive line, possibly. He's added somebody, added a linebacker from Virginia, defensive lineman from Missouri, played well at the end of the year. Go on and on. He's just, I mean, he could have half of his starters. Half of his starters could be 
first year transfers. That's that's pretty pretty impressive. My last thought on 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 this between LSU and, and Florida, John, and I think both you know have the the potential for you know some year one success under the new coaches. But you mentioned okay, LSU usually having maybe a little tougher schedule being in the West, but as you look at at Florida's schedule this year, I think it's a it's a tough draw. I mean, right right off the bat, right out of the shoot, they're hosting Utah in in week one. And you know, if you <laughs> you mentioned you didn't you didn't watch a ton of mediocre Pac-12 football last year. Well, well, Utah was was more in the the upper echelon of of that conference. We both saw them play a number of of times, and and that'll be a tough opener for uh, for Florida. And then you know they have Florida State on the road. I know Florida State is is a far cry of what they once were, but still, there's your your two, you know, your two Power Five non-conference games uh, when you only have to play one in, in the SEC. You got Utah and Florida State, and then in addition to having the crossover with LSU, Florida's on the road at Texas A&M. So, despite being in the usually easier East Division, you know, Florida's schedule I think does them no favors in in year one of a new coaching tenure. So they have a chance to play, uh, and I don't include Florida State, but a chance to play three teams outside their division that could be nationally ranked. Utah will certainly be. It'll be the Pac-12 favorite and a top-10 team in preseason. It should be better than last year when it um, when it won the Pac-12. So uh, Florida will be an underdog in that game. Even playing in Gainesville, it'll be an underdog against a very experienced team. And and LSU with maybe more potential there, and certainly Texas A and M on the road. You're right. I I hadn't even looked at that schedule really. That's a that's a brutal schedule. All right, changing gears, John. Promised off the bat, we'd have some some hoops talk on this podcast, a first for us. But uh, you know, we're we'll flip on the TV and watch a little round ball from from time to time, particularly this time of year in in March is is when the sport late February into March into April, that's when the, the sport of college basketball really, really gets good. And in the sec tournament down in Tampa, Florida, for some odd reason gets underway, uh, on Wednesday. Did, did you know that Tampa was the home of sec men's basketball fandom? John, I was unaware of that. Uh, it's funny years ago, I covered it. The, the last time they played, uh, the SEC tournament in Tampa, and I didn't understand why they did it then either. It's too far away from most SEC schools. I mean, you kind of need a central, you know, Atlanta is always a good place. Nashville to me is a good, a good place for that tournament, but they'll have it in Tampa and Tampa's uh, lucking out because this is a really strong basketball conference. It it look it, it might not have a national champion like we saw in football. It might not have two teams playing for the national title, but I could see a couple of these teams uh, making the final four. I think they have that kind of talent. It's interesting, John. I wrote a column about this this week. Um, John Calipari stumped for the SEC to receive nine bids to the NCAA tournament. Now it's not unusual for a, a coach of a conference to say, hey, give give a bunch of bids to teams from from our conference. And and I don't think the SEC is going to get to nine bids. I think probably seven is more the, the realistic target. Maybe could creep to eight if some some wonky things happen in the SEC tournament. But I think seven's probably more of a of a realistic number. And you have six teams that are, regardless of what happens in Tampa, 
uh, Auburn, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas, LSU, and Alabama. All, those six are are all in. And then your bubble teams are, are Texas A&M, Florida, South Carolina, Mississippi State. But more to the point of than just Calipari stumping for nine teams, if you would have said nine SEC teams in the SEC, in the NCAA tournament, just even thrown that out there as a possibility six years ago, I mean, it would have been like satire. It would have been a joke. <laughs> you know, the SEC was putting in three teams in the NCAA tournament three times in a four-year span. They only got three NCAA bids. They were being, you know, outperformed by the American Conference. <laughs> you know, the Mountain West was putting in more teams than the SEC. Now, although the SEC is not going to get nine bids, they're at the point where they can consistently pencil in, I think, six-plus six teams into the SEC, or excuse me, NCAA tournament. Where do you see, is it as simple as hiring better coaches? Is, is, that, is that as simple as, <laughs> as it gets for improvement in the SEC? Because it, it does seem like there was a concerted effort you know, in the last six, eight years to start hiring better coaches and investing in better coaches in the conference. Blake, I think a lot of this can be attributed to the late SEC commissioner, Mike Slive. He took his turn on the tournament selection committee. And, and during that, his time on the committee, he realized how much stock the committee placed on scheduling, non-conference scheduling. And he basically, that was his, uh, that's what he told uh, these different, all these basketball programs they had to do. They had to schedule tougher games outside the conference. That would be one step. And so I think that was a factor in it. I think it really helped to have a commissioner say, we really value basketball in this conference. We really value it. And I think ADs got that message. So they went about the scheduling. And then to your point, they went out and paid big bucks to, uh, to coaches. I mean, you look at the league right now, three of the highest paid coaches in the country are in this conference. John Calipari, Rick Barnes at Tennessee, and Bruce Pearl just got a, a massive deal at Auburn where he'll yeah, and Eric waiting. Musselman at, at Arkansas, even he's, he's making 4 million. So you could, yeah. you could even go down the list to the, to sort of the, the next tier beyond those, but you're right. Yeah. There's, there's three kind of carrying the flag and then even, even a couple more are making pretty good coin. It remember at one point in the sec, it was unthinkable to have a basketball coach making more than a football coach. Kentucky, of course, being the exception. But surely Auburn's not playing, paying Brian Harson as much as it's playing, paying Bruce Pearl. It's it's beleaguered football coach. Tennessee's not playing, paying Josh Heupel as much as it's paying Rick Barnes. And I don't know what Sam Pittman's making in Arkansas, but it'd be pretty close between him and uh, Musselman's and Mus making more. Musselman's making more. See, I, I just don't think it used to be that way in this conference. Those to me are the factors. They upgraded the schedule. You look at the teams these these schools play down the SEC. I mean, look, Alabama played Gonzaga. It beat Houston. It beat Gonzaga. That's Alabama. Five years ago, if Alabama did what it did in the conference, there's no way it would be in line. It played it all a usual schedule back then, knocked over a few straw men. There's no way Alabama would be considered for the NCAA tournament. 
but you got to could now, I mean, Alabama, when you can beat the number one team in the country in Gonzaga, you beat a really good Houston team. Those are the biggest factors in, in the SEC's uh, improvement. And I don't want to make too much of this, John, but I, I did think that it was notable back in 2016 when the SEC got just three teams in the in the NCAA tournament for the their third time in a four-year span. You know, Greg Sankey really planted his flag at that point and, and made clear that mediocrity in in basketball, men's basketball, was, was no longer going to be accepted. And he brought in Mike Trangisi as a special advisor for men's basketball, the former Big East commissioner, uh, who was the commissioner not in the current iteration of the Big East, but if you think of back when the Big East was really in its heyday, for men's basketball. Mike Trangisi, Mike Trangisi was, was the commissioner then, and he's been serving in a special advisory role to the SEC since then. I talked to him this week about the evolution in, in men's basketball for the SEC, and he recalled, you know, right after he was brought in as a special advisor, meeting with athletic directors um, in, in 2016, and he was a little bit struck by, it seemed like at least among SEC athletic directors, there was at least a feeling among some that like, ah, well, you can't expect to have high level success in men's basketball in the SEC. And he, he said he didn't name the athletic director, but he said one athletic director even started to tell him that that football is part of the problem. Like you can't be this good in football and then expect, you know, basketball to uh, to to be what football is. And and Trangisi said, no, like, no, you're looking at it wrong. Like football helps you. That's that's not a that's not a problem. You bring in recruits for a football weekend. You're telling me that's not an advantage and, and the, the revenue that football can help generate, um, the passion that you, uh, that you drive in your fan base starting in, in the fall. Like he said, you're looking at it wrong. That's, that's not a disadvantage. That's an advantage. I think he's right. Like, yes, football is king in the South and that's never going to change, but I don't think success in football has to work against you in basketball. I think Alabama is showing that to the contrary with uh, under under Nate Oates that yeah Alabama basketball is not going to be what Alabama football is, but it doesn't have to be a deterrent for success. It it can work to to your favor. Oh, I agree. And again, bringing in Tran Gazy that that speaks to my point earlier. You're showing at the conference level we really care about basketball. We want to be really good in basketball. They're sending all these messages. And then for Trangisi to say, yeah, you're looking at it wrong. You got to rethink things. And I think that's what's happened in this league. And so once you get good at it, I think you're going to stay good at it for a long time. I, I think this is a sign of things to come, not just what we're dealing with this year. I want to get to your your conference champion pick in in this hoops tournament here in a minute john but first uh georgia has announced that it's it's parting ways with with tom crean uh at the end of this season and another coach that as we record this coming into the sec tournament is twisting in the wind hanging in the balance seems to be conzo martin at missouri you covered conzo while he was a coach at tennessee uh, and i know you followed his career why do you think it hasn't worked for Conzo at, at Missouri? Because it seemed like it'd be a natural fit, but he just, I don't think he's recruited the state of Missouri and the St. Louis area quite as well as, as Missouri hoped. The Michael Porter Jr. era, you know, was sort of a bust. Porter Jr. was mostly hurt the lone season he was there. And it just, 
has never seemed to gain traction. Why do you think that is? And and do you think it's time for Missouri to make a move there or stick it out with for one more season at least under Conzo? Well, Conzo's moved around a little bit. He went to Cal and brought in a couple of high-level recruits. He did the same thing when he first went to uh, Missouri and he brought in, who were the guys? Were the Porter Porter yeah. brothers? And mm-hmm. that was supposedly would be the linchpin of their, their basketball program. It didn't work out. Conzo came here in a tough situation and he was following one of the greatest coaches in UT history and Bruce Pearl, who took Tennessee to six straight tournaments. I think people like Conzo as a person, but I don't know why I even bring that up. That doesn't have anything to do with coaching, but I think he was, he was liked as a person. I think he's a good guy. He presents a strong figure, a strong authority figure. And I thought he would be able to recruit better than he has because to me i could i just kind of think he might which should be a good recruiter based on his personality and the and the image he presents but that hasn't proved out i don't think conzo is really very adept at promoting and marketing his program and i think that's important in sec basketball because you are second to football but you want to promote it. You, you want to make it seem important. Nate Oates has done that at Alabama, and nobody's done it better than Bruce Pearl at Auburn. That's Completely transformed the fan base, where this is one of the hottest tickets in the SEC. So I think you need a basketball coach. You don't need to promote football in the SEC, but I, I think it helps to promote basketball. And I, I, so that might work against Conzo. You know, it's interesting with, with Kanza, John, is he's in his 14th year as a Division One head coach. In 14 years, you know how many times he's advanced past the first round of the NCAA tournament? One time. Kanza's made it past the first round of the NCAA tournament one time. He went to the Sweet 16 that final year with Tennessee before he departed at yeah. a cow. This is, this is someone who's, who's had pretty good run in his career in terms of getting you know decent coaching jobs. And he's, he's really, uh, he's really milked that one sweet 16 bid for all it's, for all it's okay. worth. Now he's, he made the, the NCAA tournament once with, with Cal and he's made it a couple times at Missouri, but he's not advanced past the, past the first round of the tournament. So it's really the guy's career as a head coach has, has been built around, uh, one season in which Tennessee, um, you know, in a bit of a surprising run in the NCAA tournament that year, advanced to the Sweet 16. That's a great stat. I hadn't even thought about that. Certainly, no, he hasn't had overwhelming success, but to coach that many years at pretty good schools, I mean, those aren't mid-major. I mean, he's done really well when you consider that. And I do think he probably, my guess is he interviews well and that he presents, as I said, a strong, authoritative figure, a guy you could rally around, but the numbers don't back that up. All right, John, let's get on to the, the picks here in, in closing for the, the conference uh, tournament. And and I know you and I both feel, and this is no shock, I think most people feel this way, there there's six teams that are, that are going to be in the big dance regardless of what happens this week, but there's really four teams in the upper echelon of of the SEC and men's basketball right now, and these these teams are have the double bye 
into the quarterfinals, and that's that's Auburn as the number one seed in the tournament. And then you have Tennessee, Kentucky, and Arkansas. So I would guess that your your pick is going to come from from that four. But uh, what do you what do you got? Well, the thing is, Blake, I don't think it's ever been harder in an SEC tournament from somebody below that top four to to win the championship. Even though this is a really deep league, but those four teams are so good. Every one of them, uh, and pretty well balanced in all areas. So yeah, I just think it would you would have to pick one of those two one of those four teams. I would go with Tennessee because Rick Barnes has got to the SEC tournament final before. He's got depth, and I think that matters greatly in an SEC tournament when you're playing one day after the next. There's no break in between. And their defense, except for one awful outing in Lexington, Kentucky has been extremely consistent. So no matter what happens offensively, Tennessee's defense can keep it keep it in the game and its guards uh, can maybe put it over the top in the in the last five minutes if need be. I'm, I'm gonna go with uh, Kentucky, John. I am tempted to take the uh, the easy pick of of just saying Auburn, you know I think wire to wire. They've probably been the best team in, in the conference. They won the, the regular season title. So I guess not probably. They were the best team wire to wire in the conference. I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised really if it's any of the, the top four teams. But I'm going to go Kentucky. I think, I think Kentucky could start to, to peak here at the right time. They got banged up a little bit you know, in the month of February, but getting, getting some guys back now, including Ty Ty Washington. Um, I, th- I think Kentucky. I like Kentucky and Auburn both in the conversation for national champions. I think, as you alluded to earlier, the SEC could produce two Final Four teams. I think Tennessee's probably in that mix as well. Maybe Arkansas if they get if they get hot. But I think Auburn and Kentucky for me are, are probably the SEC's two best bets for the Final Four. Um, and I think this week is is where we start to see Kentucky get into that rhythm. I think, and and I think what's going to be a, a memorable finish to their to their season. I agree, and I would pick Kentucky would be my second pick. I love Auburn, particularly playing at home, and I, th- I also agree that Auburn could make the Final Four. I, I think Auburn and Kentucky can both make the Final Four. Uh, Kentucky usually, I mean, it's been a dominant team in this tournament, and its fans will be there, even though it's in Tampa. Kentucky fans will travel to Tampa, so there will be that just that big blue power base there and and ty ty washington it slipped when he was hurt he's a dynamic player and i thought the best team i've seen all year i haven't watched all the good teams in college basketball were kentucky against tennessee when they played in lexington and kentucky won by about 28 points and kentucky against kansas when it went into allen fieldhouse and just dominated the Jayhawks. So, yeah, you've got a really good pick there. I, I, I Tennessee and then Kentucky for me. So, and Auburn, I think when Auburn's playing at its best, it could beat anybody too. Yeah, I, I just love watching Kentucky's Oscar Sheboy play. I mean, <laughs> it's sort of a throwback. A guy that can go out and get 20 rebounds in a game for me, I <laughs> I enjoy watching those guys play. I mean, you know, it's it's really in vogue now to have the, the big man that can step out and, and hit a three. I'm fine with that, 
but I just, I, there's something really special. I think about watching, watching a big man who can dominate down there on the block and go, go grab 20 rebounds in a game. You just, you don't see that many guys these days, uh, hauling in 20 boards, do you? He he's a throwback player. He he reminds me of Charles Barkley. When the ball came off the glass, you knew he was going to get it. It didn't matter how tall he was or how heavy, or how short he was, rather, or how heavy he was. Charles would get the rebound, and Sheepway's that way too. He is fun to watch. He's so devoted. I've never seen a player so intent on getting a rebound. It's that that's that's his identity. And it just motivates him game after game, play after play. All right. Well, enjoy March Madness. We thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. This has been another installment of SEC Football Unfiltered.